Hi, welcome back. I'm excited for this episode today because we're talking all about medications during pregnancy. We get to learn from Dr. Alyssa Hickert, who is a psychiatrist at the University of Utah. She explains to us the safety of medications in pregnancy, and then we talk about a few different classes. So first we talk about antidepressants, which are typically used for depression and anxiety. Then we talk about mood stabilizers, which are often used in bipolar disorder. And then finally, we talk about antipsychotics, which are used in people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and even for sleep during pregnancy. If you are not taking medications within those classes, those portions might be really boring to you. But I do think there is value in listening to the whole episode because she offers more general advice throughout it. After we talk about the three medication classes for about the last 10 minutes, she talks about intrusive thoughts. And I think we've mentioned them in most episodes so far. And I think that's because it can be really, really helpful to know that you are likely to have them. If you can be educated about them before you have children, then when they happen, they'll be less surprising to you. Also, because like I say in there, up to 100% of people have them. I think that might be it. Let's get started. Okay, well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Alyssa. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Could you start out just by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit how you got started in maternal mental health. Yeah, my name is Dr. Alyssa Hickert. I'm a board certified consultation liaison psychiatrist, which means I work as a psychiatrist, but mostly at the intersection of medical problems and mental health problems. So I, I reside in a workspace, mostly in medical hospital systems, not like a psychiatric unit. And that comes together really nicely with reproductive or perinatal mental health, because we're seeing women at a period of time in their lives really driven by this new medical medical diagnosis, pregnancy, and then talking about the ways in which it's affecting their maybe pre-existing mental health diagnoses or the way pregnancy brings on new mental health problems for women. So it's sort of a, a sub-genre of my area of expertise. And then I've always been interested in it because I think this is just such a impactful time in patients' lives, both as parents, but then also we know a patient who's doing well or better than they could be in pregnancy and after pregnancy. That has huge impact for their whole family structure, for the kids they already have at home, for the baby they're carrying, the baby who's born, for partners in the home as well. And so it's just a, a really crucial moment to make sure patients are doing well. And it's also just a patient population I really like working with. Yeah, same. It's very rewarding. And I think also just because I can relate in a way that I can't relate with everybody. It is really rewarding. Yeah. There's so much about just being a, especially in the field, like a, a young or early middle-aged woman and, and coming and meeting patients in that space. Definitely. So we're going to talk about medications today and if they're safe during pregnancy, risks that come up. Let's just start. Are they safe? Can they be used? Yeah. I think that's the, that's a great place to start because obviously 
this is a huge group of medications. We have mood stabilizers and antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, even antipsychotics, which sometimes are used for anxiety or depression. So it's a huge, it's just a, a giant group of a lot of different classes or different families of medication. But I would say far and away, the majority of my time is spent, particularly in clinics, telling patients or reassuring patients that generally, with a few exceptions, these medications are safe to continue in pregnancy. And unfortunately, for the many women who came before us in past decades, we didn't have good data on these medications. And the data is still incoming. The amount of data I have about any one medication is different and involves definitely a discussion with your doctor. But far and away, the majority of what I spend my time doing with patients is is reassuring them that these aren't things you need to stop in pregnancy. This isn't a question of sort of your ability to to power through pregnancy without something that's helped you for the sake of your baby or for the sake of the fetus and keeping medication exposure minimal in pregnancy. Really, it's what works best for mom is what's going to work best for baby in most cases. And generally speaking, what's working for you before pregnancy is going to be safe to continue in pregnancy. I feel like I hear just people in my life say like, oh, I, I would like to get pregnant, but I need to get off my antidepressant first. It's usually antidepressants where at least I'm having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And this is not with me being a provider. This is me just as a friend. And I'm like, oh, like you... You actually don't have to. It seems like it's a pretty new thing that people can stay on these medications yeah. while they're pregnant. Yeah. And I think, well, one, everyone has an opinion, right? Like there's everyone right. has been a child or has seen someone give birth. So everyone has an opinion about what a pregnant lady needs to be doing, whether it's drinking caffeine or taking medications. And I think there's just this overarching concept of birth as being natural is healthy and natural means no medications. And we we just broadly generalize across an entire field of medicine that a person needs to be off medications. Because I hear the same thing. I hear like, well, I got to, once I'm off this medication, I can get pregnant. And there's some medications for which that's absolutely true. But the vast majority of the medications I work with these days, it's not. And I think part of that really was that up until probably the last decade, we just didn't have large studies at any one medication. So we had all of these small reports of women taking a medication and having a bad pregnancy outcome. And then doctors very rightly get concerned about, oh my gosh, am I giving bad outcomes to my pregnant patients? And it wasn't until really the last decade that we started to be organized and look at studies with large groups of women. And instead of just comparing women on a medication to women who don't take the medication. We're comparing women who have depression and take a medication compared to women who have depression. So we're looking already at at the things you can change versus the things you can't and how impactful that is or is not for pregnancy. And really the the long story short of it is that our data was pretty crummy up until the past <laughs> decade and we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants and so no medication just felt sort of inherently safer 
Gotcha. You also mentioned in these studies, you're comparing people with depression without medication versus people with depression with medication. So what are the risks of not treating mental illness in pregnancy? Yeah. Or not treating depression or anxiety or, or whatever. No, that's such a good question. Because really, when patients come into my office and they're saying, hey, I've struggled with depression for years and I find that I do well on Lexapro or I'm doing well on my Prozac or my Zoloft, but I want to get pregnant and I'm worried about what that will mean for me. What we're really trying to think about is not, okay, what's the good part about the medication? And then what are the bad parts about the medication? But really even bigger picture, what does pregnancy look like for you if you have poorly controlled anxiety? What would pregnancy look like for you if your depression isn't treated? And we know Mental health diagnoses, anxiety and depression being the most common, do carry some increased risks, even within pregnancy, sort of regardless of the treatment you're getting. And those tend to be babies are, are born a little bit early on the spectrum of a couple weeks. So not, not typically profoundly, but you carry a higher risk for preterm birth. And then you higher, carry a higher risk for a baby who's a little bit small. So low birth weight or small for gestational age is the term some studies use. Okay. That's helpful to know. So there's potentially some risks, maybe not huge, maybe not always. I'm not trying to like say that people should just go without medication. The risk itself doesn't change how I counsel patients. So if I have someone who really is doing well off an antidepressant but has had depression in the past, I don't say, oh my gosh, well, you know, with this depression, you're going to carry a risk for babies born, being born a little bit early or babies being born a little bit small because it is still the minority of people where we see this shift. What I'm really thinking about is a person's experience in pregnancy, because longer term, we know that there's greater chance of negative outcomes towards like behavior changes in kids or developmental changes in kids. And certainly if you're struggling with depression, particularly later in pregnancy or anxiety later in pregnancy, you're going to have difficulty with that bonding after baby's born and more difficulty with breastfeeding. So even beyond how the pregnancy is going to progress, I think I talked to patients about What's their experience going to be with those symptoms if those symptoms aren't managed? Because that can impact really like other important plans they have for themselves and their families, like breastfeeding or just being well-regulated around their kids. Certainly when I'm struggling with, with mood changes or anxiety, I know I don't have the threshold around my son that I want to have and tolerate <laughs> that stress. And then we're talking about just how high stress postpartum can be. So trying to make yeah. things easier for people. That's a really good point. I feel like that's more meaningful to like me than like, okay, I might have the baby a few weeks early. I feel like that's helpful to reframe like how will my pregnancy experience be? How will my postpartum experience be? Is it better to to prevent some of those issues by being on medication throughout my pregnancy instead of having to deal with it once they are more they're more difficult. You have less time. You're not sleeping. So yeah, that's oh, that's a really helpful reframe. That's actually a good point too. Like your it is so hard for us to catch those symptoms, especially by the time I'm seeing someone and their depression has come back or their anxiety is really, really exacerbated, has gotten so much worse in the postpartum. We're just playing catch up in a way that makes everything feel that much more stressful. Like there's only so fast I can start a medication and increase the dose. And then we're already battling all of these other features that happen after baby's born. So we're already racing the clock and competing against all the sleep deprivation. Suddenly you have this new 
roommate in your life who needs their own <laughs> doctor's appointments, all these other things. So that's not a point in time when women do well getting themselves care or prioritizing their health. So it's tough to pick those pieces up, much tougher to pick the pieces up than it is to just keep the puzzle together. Yeah, well said. Is there anything else you like to teach patients regardless of the medication you prescribe? So I would, I think, first and foremost, it's really easy for people in your life, family members, friends, and even well-intentioned care providers to make generalizations about what you do or do not need in pregnancy. And that really is, it's such an individual decision and it should be a really intentional discussion with you and the person prescribing your medication. Even if I have patients who choose not to take medications during pregnancy, and I fully support them if that's where we're headed, we just have really robust discussions about what it might look like to intervene if symptoms get worse. Having really explicit discussions with your support system about how they can be supportive goes a long way. And for most of the disease processes I treat, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, maintaining sleep in postpartum is just huge. So for almost all of my patients, as tough as it is, I will counsel them to try and get five consolidated hours of sleep. If that means pumping or supplementing with formula so that a partner can take over one feeding session. So baby's still eating those like every three hours that they're supposed to eat, but you can get a not solid. I I don't count five hours a solid amount of sleep, but it really is like a uninterrupted period of sleep that also does wonders for maintaining symptoms. I think that is so important. And you really do have to rely on that support system in order to do that. Do you have any recommendations for people who don't maybe have a partner who's living with them? Oh, it's so hard. Just giving yourself grace and, and acknowledging planning goes a long way. And then acknowledging the plan is is inevitably going to break down and we just have some goals <laughs> we're setting and we're going to we're going to work with those as much as we can and giving ourselves grace when there are balls we have to drop in the the vast juggling that you'll end up doing postpartum. Yeah, I think that's good. Don't approach it perfectionistically like I have to get these 5 hours or my mental health's going to unravel. It's like that's a goal and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Yeah. These are just things outside our control. We're going to we're going to aim for the best, but no one's ever going to hit 100%. If you're so anxious about getting the sleep that you just make your anxiety worse, then we're moving in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Good point. Let's go through like the three different groups of medications we're going to talk about. So we'll talk about antidepressants, which treat depression and anxiety mostly, mood stabilizers that typically treat bipolar disorder, but can be used in other things. And then antipsychotics, which is a very poorly named group of medications that can be used in bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, treatment-resistant depression. So let's start with antidepressants. What do you like to teach when you're prescribing these medications? What, are you, what information are you going over? What data do you explain? Yeah, thankfully, antidepressants of all of these sort of families of medications have the most data to date. And we have some really large studies that look at this family of medications as a whole. And we can say some really reassuring things to parents to be, which is what I always like to start with, which is that we don't 
see any increased rates with antidepressants for increased rates of miscarriage or difficulty conceiving or increased rates of infertility, no increased risk for congenital malformation, so birth defects. And then the things we do worry about either happen incredibly rarely to the point that they're difficult to study or are rare but generally don't require significant intervention. And so they don't usually guide us away from prescribing these medications if they're helpful. And when I talk about those two things, what I'm really talking about are are two things in particular are associated with antidepressant use in pregnancy. One of those is called persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. It's abbreviated PPHN. And this is a tough thing to talk about because it's ultimately because it's so rare. So that's the good news. It's a rare occurrence where the blood pressure in the lungs is high enough that it can cause difficulty with oxygenation into other parts of the body. So it's a big deal, but it's so rare that it's difficult for us to study. And that means we know there's some association with antidepressant use, but it still remains unclear to us if it's linked to the medications explicitly or if there's actually something about people with depression or anxiety that we're not catching in that data. If perhaps people are smoking cigarettes in pregnancy at higher rates because of poorly managed depression, anxiety, for example. And it's just so rare that it's tough for us to get a really good study where we look at women with the medication who are identical to women not taking the medication and say explicitly what's happening with this PPHN. We do know that it's rare where we're talking about an increase of like a couple cases out of a thousand. So the increase itself seems significant in that we're talking about, oh my gosh, we're going from like one or two cases out of a thousand to three or four cases out of a thousand. But again, it's still so rare. It's tough to say one way or the other. I talk to patients about it because if you Google, you're definitely going to hear about it. You're going to, you're going to have to have some awareness of these things. Um, but it doesn't, there hasn't ever been a point in time where that discussion with a patient has really changed the plan we have around their antidepressant. And just to clarify, so this happens in the newborn. So like right after delivery, there might be, is that right? It's not anything that happens during the pregnancy. Correct. We, it ends up being diagnosed after baby's born. Okay. The other piece I talked about, this idea of something that might require brief intervention, we have a concept of what's called a neonatal adaptation syndrome. It has a couple different acronyms, but NAS is one of the ways it's one of its acronyms. Is that a right word? Yeah. One of the acronyms. (laughs) One of the acronyms for it. It goes by a couple other synonymous names, but we think of this as sort of an abrupt discontinuation. If we know there's some sort of exposure to an antidepressant for the baby in utero, for the fetus, when they're born, there's sort of an adjustment period. We see this last hours, days, in rare cases up to weeks. And again, it's a tough thing to study because a lot of the features of this neonatal adaptation syndrome are just vague baby things, meaning that we see in some cases something a little bit easier to track, like an increased jitteriness in an infant, so like tremors, but other things associated with this include fussiness, increased crying, difficulty sleep patterns, difficulty with suckling, in rare cases, some difficulty with breathing, and some of those symptoms are just 
fussy baby effects. And we have some bias where we're looking back at, at moms who had this medication exposure. And for the vast majority of babies, it doesn't require any additional intervention. So the fussiness, the jitteriness resolves on the spectrum of days. I'm not concerned with antidepressants, increasing risk for babies to die or even have any long-term complications. We just know that there is Maybe for some babies, having a little bit of exposure when they're in mom's body and then after being born, that exposure to the medication ceases. So it's sort of like they stop the medication cold turkey. And even though these aren't addictive medications, it can cause some symptoms in the same way. If you were to stop taking medication, all of a sudden you might feel crummy the next day or two. It's not the majority of babies. It's the vast minority. So a lot of this is all conjecture. We think it has to do with some exposure in mom's body and then losing that exposure once they're born. But even that's all theoretical. So it sounds like it's much more common than the, the first one, correct? Yes. The So our PPHN, our persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn is rare on the spectrum of like two to three per a thousand births. So less than 1%. And with our neonatal adaptation syndrome, we're thinking more like 10 to 30%. So still a third of babies or fewer, but definitely more common and and something for moms to be aware of. It doesn't particularly change management or the kind of care a baby has to receive after baby is born, but being aware that there's potential for increased fussiness, potential for difficulty with feeding. These are things that moms should be aware of. And it's usually just for a few days, it sounds like. Sometimes it's weeks, but most of the time it's, it's a handful of days. Mm, like one to four days is the average there and occasionally some outliers. Which totally makes sense. Yeah, I've I've withdrawn from Zoloft yeah. before and it was, it, I was pretty fussy. Right. Too, we don't so. know, we don't know explicitly that that's what's happening, but I think that's what makes sense because right. this is, these are symptoms that baby experiences once they leave mom's body and it, it goes away spontaneously without any interventions. It stands to reason that in the same way. If you skip a couple doses of your antidepressant, you might feel crummy and not everyone does, but a strong minority of people will say, oh yeah, I forgot, forgot my Lexapro today and I'm feeling a little headachey. Yeah. Okay. Anything else about antidepressants you like to go over? Those are, I think those are the highlights. The big message being these are medications that don't carry significant risk across the board. And so really thinking about how they might be useful to you. And if you choose not to take the medication in pregnancy, Absolutely. That's a useful decision to make as well, that having a plan if you find that symptoms come back and making sure you're in regular communication with your doctor so you're not waiting until symptoms get really bad to start treating it. I would also, I am a reproductive psychiatrist and this is me painting with a broad brush across classes of medications. You should be speaking to your doctor about your specific needs. Someone who has struggled with depression once or twice in their lives and taken a medication and had their depression resolved spontaneously is a very different discussion for me with that patient compared to a patient who comes to me and has had terrible suicidal thoughts every time they're not taking an antidepressant. Like very understandably, those are different risks that we're weighing in each of those cases. So this is my big picture, but make sure you're talking to your doc. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Everyone's situation is different. It's helpful to know the information, but it's also really important to talk to someone who knows your situation. It should always be a shared decision with you and your doctor. And if you have someone else in your life who says, well, I stopped Zoloft in pregnancy and I was fine, like more power to that person, but we also don't know what they're 
anxiety or their depression looked like beforehand. Yeah. Apples and oranges. Everyone's different. Okay. So let's move on to mood stabilizers. What do you like to teach about those? Mood stabilizers. Mood stabilizers is a big, broad family of medications. And some of them are anti-seizure medications that also have some mood stabilizing properties. Some of them, like lithium, operate only as mood stabilizers. Probably the two I see prescribed most often in pregnancy are lamotrigine and lithium. So I'll talk about both of those briefly. But again, it's it gets into some more nitty gritty details. And so I'll try to <laughs> not to bore everyone who's not on those medications. <laughs> yeah, just like skip a few minutes if this is boring. Fast forward, fast forward. So Lamotrigine is an anti-seizure medication that also has some mood stabilizing properties. And it, the data that we have around it in pregnancy is all generally very reassuring. With Lamotrigine, we same sort of thing with our antidepressants. We don't have any data that suggests there's increased risk of formations for babies who are born, no increased risk of infertility or miscarriage. But Lamotrigine is actually the seizure medication that we use in in a lot of pediatric cases. So it's well tolerated and we don't have any concerns for lamotrigine specifically as increasing risk for babies long-term. The problem with lamotrigine is it's a wonderful medication, but it isn't a heavy hitter when it comes to controlling bipolar disorder. Our mood stabilizers are the medications we use predominantly to maintain a normal mood in the setting of bipolar disorder. And bipolar disorder, unfortunately, even beyond the risks we see with depression or anxiety in pregnancy, bipolar carries with it some pretty gnarly stuff if it's undertreated in pregnancy. So in addition to maybe some smaller babies or born a little preterm, we know that there's also increased risk for C-section. There's increased risk for preeclampsia. We think there's increased risk for antepartum, so before birth bleeding in moms. So it carries like it carries with it definitely definitely reasons to be concerned and all my patients with bipolar disorder get closer care and more more frequent contact during pregnancy. The other tricky part is if you are someone with a bipolar disorder, then you probably know that unlike depression alone or unlike anxiety alone, you really can't be going off and on your medications based on when you feel well. That's like a big difference with our bipolar disorder versus a depression. I have a lot of patients with depression who once they're well for several months will stop their antidepressant and can even be off their antidepressant for years and not experience those symptoms. Bipolar disorder is a different animal. And we know for women who stop their mood stabilizer in pregnancy, they have an 85% chance that they're going to have a mood episode in pregnancy. And that risk probably increases even more. Wow. Yeah. It's a high enough number that it's only with great trepidation. It's only with a lot of caution and some really thorough discussion with a patient that we would choose not to continue a mood stabilizer in pregnancy. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really helpful to know. So lamotrigine is not great for you said. So lamotrigine, if you're stable, lamotrigine is an awesome medication, but it's not a heavy hitter if your symptoms are More sort intense. of rearing back. Okay. Yep. So the majority of patients I, I see, if they are taking lamotrigine also during pregnancy, will end up with some extra coverage of their symptoms. And it usually ends up being with either lithium or a newer antipsychotic. You mentioned before, antipsychotic is a little bit of a misnomer because it can also... They also get some mood stabilization. Yeah. And so are there any specific risks with lithium that people should be aware of if they have to, they end up taking that? Absolutely. 
lithium is one that carries a much longer potential side effect risk. The biggest one really being there's an increased risk for some cardiac abnormalities in infants. The risk is small to start, but it does double. So that in and of itself is always frightening for patients to hear, oh my gosh, here I am, like my risk of a cardiac malformation, my infant is doubled. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. When we look at sort of the specific malformations, we're thinking about a couple that are extremely rare, something that there's one malformation in particular called an Epstein's anomaly, which is a very big deal, but it occurs in less than 1%, actually less than half of 1%, and with lithium is still less than 1%. And when we look at more common cardiac malformations in infants, we're talking about separated out occurring in about 1% and that risk increases to about 2% on lithium. So thinking about the number itself, oh my gosh, this risk is doubling. That in and of itself is a big deal. But bigger picture for lithium, the the risk, the objective risk or the absolute risk still remains small. Gotcha. That's helpful. Lithium, despite this increased cardiac risk for infants, and because the cardiac risk is still big picture, low, lithium remains on our list of medications because it does its job really super duper well. We have a lot of data for lithium in bipolar in pregnancy that shows it controls symptoms in a way that a lot of other medications don't. And so if I have patients who take lithium and have responded well on it, there are some things we can do to help reduce some of their risk and reduce some of their anxiety around the medication. We'll check the level of the lithium in their blood throughout pregnancy. We can change dosing according to how their symptoms are feeling. And then there's some maybe some data that taking higher doses of folic acid, which is already a supplement in all of your prenatals, but might give you a little bit more protection against some of those cardiac risk factors. Cool. Okay. That's helpful. Anything else you want to add about mood stabilizers, lamictal, lithium? It's just a shared decision with your doctor, right? These are not easy decisions to make, but ultimately it needs to be a patient's decision. And I want all of the moms who see me to to just be armed with information. Other important things, not just applicable to mood stabilizers, your metabolism of medications does increase during pregnancy. So I do warn patients, hey, you might need a higher dose than you're used to. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're actually getting a higher dose in your body or your liver, your kidneys are chewing through these medications faster. Mm, that's helpful. And then let's talk about antipsychotics last. Antipsychotics of all of the medications we have studies on, antipsychotics are the newest to the party. Actually, they are, I should correct that. They are not the newest to the party. We have old antipsychotics, which have been around for a while. And now this newer class, this newer family of antipsychotics, they're sometimes called atypical antipsychotics or second generation antipsychotics. And these medications end up getting used for a lot of other things besides just psychosis. In really small doses, they can be used for mood stabilization or even just antidepressant boosting effect for sleep or anxiety. So it's a new medication family that I see used pretty frequently at all these variable doses in pregnancy, sometimes just really low doses for sleep or anxiety, and sometimes higher doses for mood stabilization, or even high enough doses that it really is managing a, a psychosis. The good news 
about this family of medications is the data we have thus far is all really reassuring that we there doesn't seem to be an increased risk of malformations with the medications and we don't particularly see any worse pregnancy outcomes with sort of two caveats. The downside to this family of medications is they are new enough that all of the data is really young and I don't feel as confident discussing this risk benefit with patients as I do for some of our other classes like antidepressants where we've just got a study after a huge study. So we can say a few things about our our newer antipsychotics and what we say generally is reassuring, but I always do warn patients this is still early stages for the data gathering around these medications. Okay. The second caveat, as I said earlier, oh, we don't see particularly increased risk for negative pregnancy outcomes. And one exception is a couple of these antipsychotics, namely those most associated with weight gain, have some increased risk for gestational diabetes. That makes sense. It depends on the dose and it depends on the medication. So again, you'll want to speak to your doctor about whether or not you're on one of these antipsychotics. The two or the three that are sort of most notorious for this would be our olanzapine, clozapine, and then quetiapine. Quetiapine is also known as the brand name Seroquel. And I'll mention specifically because we we think the gestational diabetes risk is probably dose-dependent. What does dose-dependent mean, just real quick? Ah, uh, yeah. So we think the risk for the gestational diabetes is tied to what kind of dose you're taking for quetiapine. And this is because at low doses of this medication, they're doesn't seem to be nearly the the increased risk for weight gain or changes to your metabolism that we we assume are associated with the gestational diabetes. It's also worth mentioning because quetiapine is used for sleep and anxiety in a lot of patients. So there are a lot of patients who are taking doses much lower than the doses that are studied when we think about this gestational diabetes risk. So I don't, I certainly don't know that it applies, that that increased risk applies to all of my patients on quetiapine in the same way I I would talk about some of the other medications. And then are there any antipsychotics that maybe have a little bit more data or ones that people tend to use more in reproductive psychiatry or are they all pretty similar? Thus far, they're all pretty similar. I think there are some that we see used most in reproductive psychiatry just because they are helpful for sleep or anxiety. And that would be the quetiapine. The brand name is one brand name is Seroquel or Olanzapine. A brand name of that is Zyprexa. And I think those are used far more often than a lot of our other uh, antipsychotics because they get used for non-antipsychotic purposes at lower doses. I think they're just more more readily used for those things. Yeah, I think, again, just to kind of harp on what you already said, it is important to have these conversations with your provider because maybe you've tried some of these medications and they haven't worked for you already. And so you know that. So it is just such an individual discussion. And, and But that's helpful to know that as far as we know, they're s- safe. Yeah, I would never, if I had a patient who came in and said, well, golly, I'm on this medication, Risperidone, and Risperidone has worked really well for me. But I heard your podcast, and <laughs> I I hear that quetiapine might be safer, maybe has a little bit more data. So I'm interested in switching. And my, of course, first question to that patient would be, well, have you tried quetiapine before? And if the answer is yes, and it wasn't helpful, then we are getting nowhere turning back to that medication because although it might be quote unquote safer based on the information we have, it's not safer 
big picture for this patient because it's not helpful. So then I'm just giving a patient a medication that doesn't help them and potentially have symptoms come back and then be exposed to a medication that's not useful. Yeah. Great. Great point. That's always the nerve wracking thing about putting anything into the internet world that uh, other people can listen to because like data changes. And so this is really good information. And then also speak with with your provider about new information and, and where you're at and what you need. Google is such a scary place and Google is such a terrifying place, particularly if you're pregnant and particularly if you struggle with mental health, because there is so much stigma and expectation around parents sort of white knuckling through pregnancy for the sake of fetus and kids. The data we have doesn't support that. Like if you are not doing well, your pregnancy will not go as well. Your kids will not do as well. But there are a lot of corners of the internet that don't think that way. I warn patients against Googling, but I still want people to be checking out reliable sources and bringing in information that we can talk about. And you as a person should make sure you have a provider who who can create some of that time or space, or at least who you feel comfortable and come and ask questions and, and have a real discussion because it is ultimately a, a decision where we're making together for you. And frankly, it's a decision my patients make for themselves. And I just give them the the info that's useful and the info that they need to make the decision. What are some reliable resources that you like to recommend? Mother to Baby. I think it's mothertobaby.org. Do you ever use this, Joni? Yeah, I do. I don't remember if it's .org. I think it's .org. .org. Yep. Mother2baby.org. T-O, not the number two. And I really like that because they have a little search bar and you can just type in the medication you're taking and it'll give you a fact sheet about it and kind of run you through all the basics of like, wow, is this, what do we know about this medication and infertility? What do we know about this medication and miscarriage risk? What, what should I be doing about this medication? And it also acknowledges the places where we just don't know. So mother to baby is a good place to start. Awesome. And then I think also if if you want to talk to someone who specializes in this, ask your provider, I guess. Yeah. So there's people who specialize in this specific field and there's at least a few at the U and there's some that are private in Utah. And so there's plenty of people to talk to if you want this to be a longer conversation. Yep. Unfortunately, so many people are crunched for time in general life and especially during pregnancy where we just we have sort of nine months for a person to be well and and you can't be on a wait list for six months if you're just starting out yeah um there are a lot of ways for your provider to reach out to other experts in the field um mm. even if it's simply reaching out to someone else in the world of ob or in the world of psychiatry who might be able to pass on some of this information so yeah just sharing with your provider any of those questions and usually there's a way for them to if not be the expert then then get a hold of someone who has a little bit more knowledge of the area. Thank you. That's a great idea. So we're going to switch gears a little bit just for the last bit. You talk to your patients a lot about intrusive thoughts. I'm just curious, how do they tend to come up and how do you explain an intrusive thought to to someone who doesn't know what it is? Intrusive thoughts are such a weird thing to describe and <laughs> and yet so sort of iconic unto themselves that if you've had one, it really resonates and almost needs no explanation. And if you've not had one, there's sort of tough to talk about, which puts me in a tricky spot as the provider, because usually I bring them up to warn patients before baby is born. When I counsel patients on, okay, baby's coming, what are we going to make sure we have close eyes 
on in the first couple weeks or even the first month or two after baby is born. And there are a couple things. I already mentioned sleep maintenance is huge and it's a losing battle inevitably, but we're going to do what we can and try and get five hours of consolidated sleep. The other two big pieces of advice I give patients is low threshold to reach out for help. This is not the time to kick the can down the road like we want you to feel as well as possible in an already stressful fog of war postpartum that happens. (laughs) And then I will warn patients, there's this phenomenon that happens particularly after baby is born where patients will experience thoughts of hurting baby. And I speak about it explicitly in this way. I say thoughts of hurting baby because that's so scary to share with anyone if you're a new parent and you have this thought of hurting your child. And we, even providers, even in the healthcare system, I think we were like, oh my gosh, well, is is this safe? Can this person, can this patient even be a safe parent with their child? And the answer is, Yeah. Because in the vast majority of cases, when a person is having thoughts of hurting baby, they don't want to hurt baby. It's this totally out of the blue or maybe minimally prompted thought that pops into your head of some sort of ill, some sort of some sort of accident befalling your child. And as a result, we panic. And it makes sense from kind of an evolutionary standpoint. Your number one job now as a new parent is to make sure this kid stays safe, right? Like this, you have one job now and it's to make (laughs) sure your kid stays safe. So your brain is just on hyperdrive and it's seeing all of this stuff in this environment and unfortunately translates it to like all the ways in which something could go wrong. And in that way, it's normal, but it shouldn't ever interfere with your ability to like parent your child or live your life. Probably the two I hear most often. And in fact, this one I experienced myself with my son was going up and down stairs. And I'm at the top of the stairs and I have this like flash in my head of me falling down the stairs or just like dropping the baby while I'm halfway down the staircase. And I don't know. I mean, I'm in my 30s. It's been decades (laughs) since I actually fell down a flight of stairs. (laughs) And I've never walked up and down stairs more carefully in my life than I have while holding my infant son. But all of a sudden, it feels like, oh my gosh, I might drop this kid. What happens if I drop this kid? So some of that is, is your brain telling you to be careful. But if it's hitting a point in time where you can't like oh my gosh, just sort of walk yourself through it or talk yourself down and say, okay, I'm walking down the stairs carefully. I know I'm going to be safe. If you find that, wow, you're picking up your child less because of these thoughts, or I've I've had patients just entirely stop using the stairs in their home because they Mm -hmm. were so nervous about it. Another big one is working in the kitchen, having thoughts of dropping baby or dropping a utensil on baby, stabbing baby, accidentally dropping baby in a pot of boiling water. And all of these things sound like absolutely terrifying and horrendous. Um, But when you think about how many parents in that postpartum stage are trying to multitask with a kid, and that includes like sometimes feeding your other kids, feeding yourself, being in the kitchen, and then seeing in this environment all of these terrible, all these utensils that are potentially dangerous. Like, I've again, I've never accidentally tripped from 10 feet away and like thrown something across the room (laughs) into a pot of boiling water. It just doesn't happen. But it suddenly seems like very possible in your brain. and, And so many parents slip into to the like, well, 
better safe than sorry. I guess I just won't do that. And if you find that those thoughts are interfering with your life, then there's absolutely room to be treating them. So to some degree, they're normal and they're very common, but they're not like, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't treat them if they're causing problems. I was looking at a study that looked at this statistic essentially, and they said somewhere between 87% and 100% of parents have an intrusive thought. Now, that doesn't mean they affect function for everybody, but people have them. I mean, you have them before you have a baby too. Like if you're driving on the road and you think about what if I hit that orange cone? Would it fly off? Or like, what if I do this? Like you have these thoughts, you just, you don't act on them and they don't seem as scary maybe because there's not a baby involved. Yeah, that, that's such a great way to put it. We all have those random thoughts like, what if I did something outrageous right now? What if I, or something <laughs> dangerous more often than not? And it's it's sort of there and gone and we just chug along with regular life. But when it's a thought about the new person in your life whose safety and responsibility is entirely your responsibility, then it starts to to carry a lot more weight. And if you can shake it off, awesome, uh, fantastic. And if you can't, it's absolutely reason to talk with your doctor. I totally believe that statistic that nearly 100% of people experience an intrusive thought. And I definitely don't see that same number of people report those thoughts to me. And I think there's just a lot of stigma around it and worry that, oh my gosh, my doctor or my husband or my wife is going to think I'm a bad partner or bad parent because I'm having these thoughts. What was also interesting is though 100% have those maybe more accidental thoughts, it said like 50% of women have thoughts of purposely hurting their kid, but they don't want to. But it's like, but what if I, and they can be pretty contagious, so I don't need to be specific, but like these thoughts of what if I purposely hurt my kid in some way, that they're pretty frequent too, but, but people don't share them. Maybe because they don't, they're not bothering them, which is excellent, but maybe also just because they're scaring them when they have the thoughts and they think they're going to do it, which they're not most of the time. Yep. That's such an important caveat, right? This, this idea that so many parents are having thoughts of intentionally hurting child, but they don't want to. And they're so like the thought in and of itself is so scary or repulsive or repellent that parents don't want to like talk it into existence by by saying anything or they just feel so terrible about it that they don't want to share. And we just need to be creating more space for that nuance and understand that we we don't actually have control over every thought that comes into our brain. And, and unfortunately, if we come from ourselves, come from backgrounds that were unsafe to us as kids, we've mm. learned the hard way that there are a lot of environments that are unsafe and and our brains then are going to be extra tuned up to to that anxiety and that fear. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are there any last pieces of advice you'd like to offer? No, I mean, I think I've covered... You got it all. Man, I've done a lot. Probably the highlights are don't write off your medication just because you want to get pregnant. It's your decision and there's space to make that choice, but just make sure you're doing it informed and give yourself grace to be healthy. Truly, what is best for parents in almost every case is going to be best for the infant when we think about treating all of our medical conditions in pregnancy. I also like, I want to reiterate you saying having a low threshold for reaching out for help. And whether that's, I'm guessing you, did you mean like more provider help or did you mean... Either way, I'm I'm speaking specifically about providers because I want you to okay. call your doctor if you're worried and not wait until the last minute until something's like really dire. But sharing your needs with the people around you earlier rather than later is going to get you a lot further too. 
I mean, I am the person, even though I wouldn't be bugged by it, I'm always wor- worried about bugging yeah, somebody to ask for it when you need it. And so I think that's just a really good point to to bring up. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. This has been yeah, so great. Hopefully, hopefully made everyone a little less frightened to think about continuing medications in pregnancy if it helps them stay well. So we're going to talk about a couple things. First, I wanted to talk about some articles discussing antidepressants and miscarriages, as well as antidepressants and autism. Second, we're going to talk about bipolar disorder. I just want to talk about bipolar disorder a little bit because she does bring it up and she brings up the word mood episode. And so I just want to explain what it is. And then finally, I'm going to add a little information on a medication that we didn't mention called valproic acid or Depakote or valproate that Dr. Hickard asked me to add after the interview. First, let's just talk about um, miscarriages and antidepressants. So when I was looking for literature, it was actually concerning at first because I was finding some studies that said there was increased risk of miscarriage with antidepressants. And I'm on one. I was like, oh, this is not what I have learned at all. So I kept looking because I'm like, I don't think this is actually accurate. I started looking for one of those studies of studies that I referenced um, in a previous episode. So I found this systematic review and meta-analysis. It looked at 26 studies and the total sample included 5.4 million individuals. So a lot of people. It first showed that people on antidepressants appeared to have a higher risk of miscarriage compared to unexposed individuals from the general population. However, this is the important part. If they, instead of just picked random people from the population, if they compared people with depression who were taking medication to people with depression who were not taking medication, the risk of miscarriage was not different, essentially. It says on the article, the summary estimate decreased when comparing against unexposed individuals with maternal depression, suggesting confounding by indication may be driving the association. Meaning there might be another factor, such as just having depression, that leads to more miscarriage, not the fact that they're taking antidepressants. Their summary statement at the end of the article was, after accounting for maternal depression, there's little evidence of any association between antidepressant use during pregnancy and miscarriage. Instead, the results indicate the biasing impact of confounding by indication. Autism's pretty much the exact same thing, is that it kind of looked like for a while that autism might increase with a mother taking an antidepressant, whether for anxiety or depression. But as they looked further into the data, they found that if people with the diagnosis were compared to people with a diagnosis who were taking medication, there was no increased risk. I thought those two would be good to go over. Okay, so then just talking about bipolar disorder a little bit. Bipolar disorder is often misunderstood. I've had many people come to me and say, I think I have bipolar disorder. And then as they explain what is going on, it's often not the case. Someone with bipolar disorder has both depressive episodes and manic episodes that last periods of time. So minimally, those periods of time are three to four days. That's for bipolar two disorder and then a week for bipolar one disorder, but they can go a lot longer than that. Sometimes people, like if they're super happy one minute and then experience a completely different emotion the next minute, they might say like, I'm so bipolar. And that is not what that is. That could be a lot of other things, but it's not that. It's not bipolar disorder. Someone who has bipolar disorder with rapid cycling, which is a specifier of bipolar disorder, 
will have four or more mood episodes in a 12-month period. Your mood doesn't change multiple times over the course of a day. Your mood changes over long periods of time. I want to bring this up because Dr. Hickert mentions people with bipolar disorder are at a higher risk for a mood episode during pregnancy. Now, a mood episode can be mania or depression. Depression happens usually far more often before a manic episode occurs. Uh, depression we are more familiar with, but I wanted to explain the mania a little bit. A key indicator of mania is a decreased need for sleep. If you can go minimally three to four days without sleep or just with a couple of hours and and like you feel fine, you might be experiencing mania. Many people who experience mania kind of feel like they have bonus batteries. Like they can just go, 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 go. There are other symptoms that go along with mania, but remember these occur at the same time and they last more than just a few hours or a day or two. Oftentimes when I'm asking people these questions, because we always screen for bipolar disorder, regardless of who you are when you come into a psychiatric evaluation, they think like, yeah, I've had times where I didn't need sleep. And then like when you dig a little bit further, you find out like they were having a really good day. They were having a lot of fun with their friends. They were really anxious for a couple of days and they had a difficult time sleeping, but they still felt tired. Other symptoms, they might be more talkative than is usual for that person. So if someone's really quiet, more talkative for them might be how much you talk. But if someone talks all the time already, then they might be talking 100 miles a minute. Is that a phrase? They get distracted really easily. They have increase in goal-directed activity, which might look like taking on a lot of new projects or picking up new hobbies. They often have an increased self-esteem, like they might feel invincible, nothing bad can happen to them. Um, they may feel unusually powerful or important. And then also they're involved in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. So that might look like engaging in unrestrained buying sprees, like spending thousands of dollars, money that they don't have, sleeping around a lot, uh, They in the DSM says sexual indiscretions, or foolish business investments. So what is not mania? I kind of brought up some of these. Feeling really anxious and not being able to sleep, that's not mania. Feeling good about yourself because you accomplished something and you're really proud of yourself. You have a reason to have an increased self-esteem at that time. And then talking more than usual one night. Like maybe you're just like in a really good mood because you're with your good friends and you're just talking a lot. That's not mania either. Again, it has to be periods of time. And then on top of it, you're having depressive episodes as well. I just kind of wanted to explain that a little bit because mania can emerge during pregnancy. In this article, uh, it's called Mood Episodes in Pregnancy and Risk of Postpartum Recurrence in Bipolar Disorder, the Bipolar Disorder Research Network Pregnancy Study. It said the following, the risk of mania and or psychosis is especially high soon after childbirth in women with bipolar disorder, with psychiatric admissions for such episodes being 37 times more likely within the first three months of delivery compared to any other times in their lives. Overall, as many as one in five women with bipolar disorder experience postpartum psychosis. And that's just talking about manic episodes. That's not even talking about depressive episodes. And finally, the little caveat that Dr. Hickert asked me to add. A little education about a medication that we didn't talk about. It's used in psychiatry as a mood stabilizer for bipolar disorder. We discussed a lot of medications that can be continued during pregnancy, but we did not discuss one medication that Dr. Hickert recommends discontinuing prior to pregnancy, and that is valproic acid. Valproic acid, also known as valproate or Depakote, carries increased risk for a significant birth defect called spina bifida, among others. It is also associated with learning difficulties extending through early childhood for people exposed to the medication in utero. So if you are taking valproic acid or Depakote, you should absolutely speak to your provider and make a plan to switch off this medication before becoming pregnant. 
Last thing, I will put the mother to baby link that she talked about in the show notes, as well as the Instagram page. We're going to do the Target giveaway within the next week. So make sure you follow it. Kudos if you made it this far. This was a long episode. Hope you have a great week.